Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with the both of us, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, we have a hedge fund and a managed accounts. Uh, depending on your net worth, uh, we do have something for everybody. Reach out to me, Andrew at focuscompounding.com. And of course, you could go to the invest with us tab on focuscompounding.com and learn more about that. Um, so in today's podcast, we are going to uh, chat about what's going on currently in the market, different things okay. and what's on our minds. Um, if today was Monday and if all this happened on a Monday, I would say, hey, merger Monday, mm -hmm. but Cedar Fair is reviewing a takeover offer from SeaWorld that's reportedly worth $3.4 billion. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Does that uh, make sense? It makes sense, yes. I, I think thought it, it made sense too. I thought I think it makes sense. Uh, I don't know how easy it is to win over Cedar Fair shareholders, but we'll see. Now, why do you say that? The Cedar holders? Fair is a, uh, yeah, Cedar Fair is a, basically a master limited partnership that pays out uh, dividends over time and stuff like that. It's been around a long time. And uh, so I'm not sure how eager they are to, uh, how eager people are to, to sell that or to swap that for anything or anything like that. So, and then just the price, you know, because of the, what we're talking about versus the past. So what is the deal says that it's, Three point. What did you? Three point four billion. Okay, and if we look at quick FS, you can see that their peak sales were one point four billion in twenty nineteen. You could assume that they get back to peak sales. So what is that? Two point three times sales or something like that. Operating margin historically was in the twenty some percent. So you're getting it for about ten times pre tax profits of what it was historically. It's pretty cash flow generative. It pays it all out in dividends. It's not a very aggressive price. Mm -hmm. And I believe uh, Six Flags is also going to look at it as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, the stock price jumped on it, of course, because they offered a premium to what it was trading at in the market. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next one that I thought was interesting, which came out, uh, was this yesterday, Spirit Airlines. They, uh, or was that today? They rally. Yep, yesterday. Um, Frontier is talking about acquiring them. Yeah. So more consolidation in the airline industry. This last one, one was Alaskan Airlines, I believe. Last big airline that okay. was merged. Yeah. This would make them probably bigger than JetBlue, I'm guessing. Probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Some people said like that this that there would be some problem with um, people reviewing this and stuff. I don't think so. I, I mean, this would help competition in the industry. Almost certainly. It doesn't give them a huge share. Lots of other companies have a much bigger share. And it combines two low-cost airlines that serve a bunch of um, airports that probably don't have a ton of competition in them. So I would think that like Washington people and stuff would be happy with it because they're probably a bunch of them concerned about um, smaller airports and mm -hmm. things like that getting enough. Um, I think they wouldn't like the four or five biggest airlines merging with each other, but I can't imagine that this is really a problem. And, but I don't know because uh, I was surprised when it was seen as a problem to merge the two uh, satellite TV companies, considering you know how much competition there is in that, or when there was a problem with um, merging two of the uh, office supply companies, mm -hmm. you know, considering how much office supplies are sold by other companies, you know, things like that. So 
you know, maybe there's a problem, but uh, it doesn't seem like a big issue to me. I wonder, I mean, what do you think would happen to the industry from like, uh, like a competitive standpoint and like the price of uh, flying anything meaningful? No, I don't think it would have a big effect. I mean, it, it, you know, it just might, I think it would just make another more viable company. I mean, we can, we can look at the two, you have spirit there, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, then you can have, uh, let's see. Bob American. Um, well, it's hard to compare. The easiest to compare to is like JetBlue and, and Southwest and stuff. But uh, I just think it would, yeah, it creates a more viable competitor mm -hmm. for for the companies like that. And that, um, so it is a different business model and everything. But I mean, the two have similar business models, but it's it's different from the companies I'm comparing it to. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know that it would have a big effect. Um, a lot of the industry is controlled by the top um, airlines, you know. So I, I can't imagine having a big issue, but I think it would probably be helpful to competition. Mm. I mean, eventually, uh, you know, Sprint and T-Mobile were able to combine. That's very true. And that's basically the logic there, that they're more, they'd be more effective merged together than having one of them at least go under. And then the last one, we could talk about Microsoft and Activision. Yeah, we, we have not recorded in a while, right? Uh-huh, so and we missed that. So that happened shortly after. I mean, I think we had an episode where we talked about Activision. Activision, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I didn't say it on that podcast, but I had been looking at both Activision and Nintendo, thinking that they were very attractive as things to buy. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think Nintendo would be interested in selling to anyone, but... Um, and, you know, now I have a deal. And I would have thought at the time, well, but but they're really big, you know. Would someone really buy them? Well, you know, Microsoft decided that they would, so. Do you think Microsoft is a great company for them to be swallowed by? Yes. I think this resolves the issue they had, which we talked about. And I think that's the only reason they're selling. Uh, the that, CEO's issues. So it's Certainly a way for the CEO to leave. Like that. Yeah. yeah. It's a way for the CEO to leave. I, I had, if... I don't know if I said this exactly there, but I had some concerns. I said that the company, you know, when you have a scandal like this, the company might change too much. You push people out, whatever. This is probably a, was conceived of as a way for the CEO to leave, probably feeling that he was going to leave anyway, that this was, he wasn't going to last for long term and not comfortable with staying an independent company with maybe him and other people at the top leaving, which is probably a good idea because I don't think I would have been as comfortable with that if they got rid of top management there. So um, you sell to someone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I mentioned like a long time ago, like DreamWorks animation stuff when they sold to Universal. That's part of the way is to, that's a way for Katzenberg to leave and stuff. Um, so same sort of uh, issue. I mean, here there's a whole scandal aspect to it, but it's a way of resolving the, uh, I mean, basically he's a founder of the company. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a company that's been run by the same uh, few people at the top, at least um, different people lower in the organization, but a couple of people who've been with the company for, you know, basically 30 years, more so than 20 even. Um, so built it from nothing to what it is today with different mergers with different companies. But I'm not sure that you would then want someone else running it at this size and everything. Uh, so I think it's probably a good decision that way. Uh, I think we should mention there's a significant spread though. Yeah. So the offer's less than 100. Wasn't it 95? What was the offer at? So it's 98, 
Oh, that's uh okay. Yeah, ninety five. Ninety five. Yeah. So this is unusual to have a spread this wide. So what's the last price on Activision? It's an all cash deal. So the last uh right. So eighty dollars as we're um, recording this, right? Yeah. So ninety five to eighty dollars is obviously a big deal, um, even though it's not planned to close for a little over a year or something like that. That's an unusually high spread. Um, and so from a merger arbitrage perspective, it's potentially very attractive. The reason for the high spread is probably regulatory stuff mm -hmm. and things like that, that the deal might fall apart. On the other hand, that's not the only part that goes into a calculation of merger arbitrage. There's some other things to consider, which is how far would the stock fall if there wasn't a deal and also, um, whether there could be a higher offer too. you know, both of those things. So I think that the market probably is correctly, so it's being reviewed by the F, uh, the Federal Trade Committee uh, Commission. Um, the uh, risks that it might not close are probably high, but the risks that this is a deal where the company wouldn't have much value or something if the deal fell apart is not very high. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting from that perspective. Meaning if it didn't go through, you would just be happy owning Activision. Yeah, so I mean, we can look at the QuickFS thing to see what it looks like now at 80 um so if you bought it at 80 you'd be buying it at what six seven times sales you know if it uh yeah and you know that's we're talking about less than 20 times pre-tax profits recently they convert like everything into free cash flow they're fairly cheap compared to some of the other companies i mean they're very cheap compared to microsoft which is acquiring them this is very you know accretive to microsoft if they're able to do this deal but they're also really pretty reasonably priced compared to things like sony and stuff like that i think activision and nintendo are pretty reasonably priced um we'll see what happens in their future you know that might, they might be reasonably priced because people expect the future to be worse for them um and that's what i was going to ask like let's say you were coming in uh, Activision with a fresh set of eyes, would you be thinking, okay, well, if this does not go through and I do own Activision, what's the future going to look like now? Because maybe management was planning on leaving, the culture is going to change, or they're having all these issues based on a scandal. How yeah. would you be thinking about it? I mean, I would, wouldn't, I'm not sure I would like it as a long term buy and hold play um, because the uh i have no idea of who will be running it and stuff mm -hmm. once it's basically been decided that you're going to get rid of the people at the top and that there's this huge scandal and everything it's really hard for me from that perspective however i think honestly the company's in play given the scandal and what happened with uh, microsoft making the offer if the microsoft offer falls apart there will be offers from others and the and a lot of different people would be interested in trying to buy it whether there anything comes of that i don't know but i think that realistically you're not going to see things go back to the way that they were even if a deal falls apart it's not just going to be that the current ceo keeps running the company and stuff after this i think it will be um bought by somebody or merged into something uh, there's going to be a some way to have a financial solution to this issue got it interesting and then other interesting news that came out today peloton so last week amazon was supposedly trying to do work on Peloton, potentially to uh, acquire the company. Mm -hmm. It seems like it'd be a good fit for like an Amazon or an Apple. Um, but the news came out today that the current CEO of Peloton is stepping down and being replaced by John Foley, um, who was the CFO at Netflix and Spotify. So someone that's coming from the background of subscription okay. scale businesses, maybe not like manufacturing, like Peloton does mm -hmm. deal a lot with, but 
Any thoughts on that? I know you had said out of Fang, the company that you would most likely buy would be Netflix. And then uh, they reported earnings they... and then the stock fell a lot. And then actually Pershing Square bought into Netflix. Yes, I did not say it would be the one I would buy. I'd say it's the one that I'm most, I actually am not that excited about Netflix as a business. Uh, just um, I just, no, no, no. I just think it's the one that's most durable. Oh, okay. I actually don't think that their business model is terrific, Netflix, in terms of making a lot of money. I don't think they have a lot of bargaining power with suppliers and things like that. But if I had to pick Google, Facebook, whatever, what do you think? How sure are you about this thing's going to be in our society and we'll be using it decades from now? Netflix is the one that ranks the highest for me. Um, but uh, I don't know how profitable the business model will be. It's a tough business model. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about Peloton. I wouldn't be able to say. You ever used the product? No. <laughs> Um, it is interesting as a thing for, you know, Amazon to consider buying or something, I guess. I would have thought Amazon would buy, um, would try to buy something like iRobot instead of Peloton, but I think that would make more sense for them to do. Uh, Peloton is, I don't know. You, I don't know. You have to be careful, Amazon, if you're buying and this. And fitness as well, right? Anyone who's buying this could lose a lot of money on it. But, you know, they're okay with losing a lot of money. I mean, that's what I was saying. I'm like, wouldn't this be great for Apple? I mean, do they even care to make a bunch of money on this? have some sort of connectedness with the iWatch or the fitness or the wearables. It seems like it would fit nicely within their ecosystem. But I guess I mean, look at that growth. I'd be worried. I mean, how is this, is this a fad? Is it not? Well, we can go to the quarterly numbers. Well, this is also a durable product. So that's a big issue is so it's like if you're selling mattresses or something like that, you run into this problem. If you sell the product and it's durable, then of course, people don't need to buy your product when you put it out new, there'll be an aftermarket for it. Yes, you have a subscription service for it. But then you have this problem, you know, that way. And so that's a potential issue there. Yeah. Um, so revenue growth, you know, was it this most recent quarter is 6%. Yeah. So it's below inflation on in real terms of shrinking, you know, um, that's why the stock sold off a lot was because in their earnings transcript, they basically said, Hey, we're pulling back on CapEx. We're just going to use the inventory that we have on hand and manage it. Basically growth is slowing. Yeah. We could look at the balance sheet. Now, do you know if Peloton, Peloton's a hundred percent sold directly? It doesn't get held in inventory by anyone else. You know, I don't know for sure, but I would say that's correct. Okay, that's sure. much better if that's the case, you know, then they have a better insight into that. It's very difficult if you do a business like this and don't know, um, you know. So let's see. So inventory. Uh, 1.2 billion. Yeah. And so what was it? Let's see. Before COVID, it was at. Three. 244 million ish. Yeah, so a significant increase in, in inventory, obviously. Yeah, that's kind of an issue. So the last two quarters even, it's doubled. Yeah. And revenue the last two quarters is even, let's see, revenue the last two quarters is up. It's not up. No, it's gone down from $1.2 billion to $937 million to $805 million. Is that, we're reading this right? Their inventory doubled? During a period in which their sales fell by 30%. Well, there you go. Now you know why the stock sold up a huge amount. Huh. Yeah, that's Part a problem. So that was just a miscalculation. I mean, you know, Boston Beer had that with, you know, Truly and things like that. And they're, they're having problems that way. I mean, the worst example of that we were talking about video game things is Atari had a, a famous incident with that, which was devastating to them. We've spoken about that. Like, 
your biggest fear with companies coming out of COVID and just in general, like with inflation and stuff like that, mm-hmm. is forecasting the right things. So it's like, okay, they're experiencing right. a ton of growth through COVID and growth that they probably thought was sustainable and going to continue. And then sales fall off a cliff and everything you did prior to build up the inventory, now you're sitting on a ton of inventory that you got to sell. I mean, with are those numbers right that we're seeing? No, no, I mean, let's go quick FS. So they report, so if we look at the income statement, this this just can't be right. So we're looking at the income statement. You're saying that so far in 2021, they've lost money on an operating basis in every quarter? Assuming this data is correct. That's during the pandemic. They're losing money each quarter on an operating basis. Now we can see how it's happening. Yeah, sure. Because the SGNA is just... I mean, it's increased 200 million, uh-huh. right? Since last year, it increased 200. I mean, you know, things like that. But there's an activist involved. Now the so CEO's let's, out. But then the cash flow, let's look at the cash flow because we were just talking about that would be even more problematic. And it is, yeah, half a billion dollars in negative cash flow from operations. So just as a rule, generally, you know, when we look at companies, they can for a moment sometimes generate negative cash flow from operations. But I would suggest to anyone listening, you know, if you're starting out investing or whatever, never ever buy a company that has a year where they have negative cash flow from operations. It can happen to be fair to companies that are extremely, they are good, but are very cyclical in terms of they have to build up a lot of, um, you know, working capital or whatever. And obviously COVID could cause it for some companies where they have a big negative number and then a huge positive number. But um, yeah, this is very large. Obviously it's just for the quarter. We don't know in the long run uh, what it'll be. And obviously a lot of it could reverse because now they have so much inventory on hand, you could end up selling a lot of inventory without having Mm -hmm. to build inventory. Yeah. But how do you move the inventory now? I've looked at companies too. I'm like, how do you handicap that? Because through 2020, they all generate a ton of cash because maybe they pull back on their payables and stuff like that and building inventory. And, uh, you know, so you kind of have to think about it and normalize it. What I've been doing is thinking like pre-2020 to kind of try to get a more normalized number for companies that... Uh, yeah. That, uh, the problem here, though, is it is like the Atari situation in that um, this is not like inventory at a uh, retailer this is inventory that competes directly against itself this way. You know, it's not like if you saw some car dealer that has a ton of inventory. Okay, well, it's a fairly general asset that can be sold, you know, and and the liquidation of it or whatever isn't the issue. This is inventory. I mean, how many different products do they have and stuff? (laughs) I I mean, honestly, the only one that we ever hear about probably is the main driver. I'm sure they have other stuff or subscriptions and stuff like that. But I mean, how do you move your inventory without doing something that causes to move that inventory that causes it to like to be less it. attractive for your other inventory then they have so much inventory that to get i mean what was their sales last quarter let's see to give an idea of how much inventory they have on hand 805 million okay and then go look at the balance sheet uh they have i mean can we see cost of goods sold sorry that's what i need to see 540 million okay so assuming that there's no slowdown Right now, they have um, two and a half quarters of inventory on hand, right? Mm. So, you know, let's say they have eight months of inventory on hand or something like that. Assuming no slowdown. Yeah. Right. And I assume that they believe there is going to be a slowdown, that they can't sell through at the rate that they were, you know, last time. I guess they figure that they keep growing at that rate. 
That is interesting. Yeah. It's hard to predict these things, obviously. I mean, I guess the fear that many companies have is they don't want to miss out, you know, lose sales and things. So they kind of project that they would continue to grow. I mean, clearly what they did is not just project that they would maintain the same level, which seems a little dubious right now, um, but that they would actually even grow it. You know, so like their growth rate would say sustained rather than just that they're... um, that they would maintain the same level of sales, even though it's more likely that they would see some decline in sales, you know? So I wonder what investors were looking at that did buy it. Of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, but the growth rate. Yeah. Of the revenue. revenue growth rate. Yes. Yeah. And the fact that it's a subscription business. Yeah. I mean, look, any business, look at that revenue growth rate each year. I yeah. mean, even before the pandemic, right? So it was doubling every year, basically. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, doubling every year. Any business that doubles every year, regardless of the economics, um, you're going to get a very fancy stock price because mm-hmm. you can just extrapolate out just a little bit and it's an amazing business, right? Um, I mean, I mentioned iRobot, right? I think they were smaller than iRobot like two years ago or something. The, maybe a year, yeah, so, you know, a year and something ago, they were still probably smaller than them. So they went from, you know, they did something that a company like that probably took two decades to do. They did in like two years, you know? It's just interesting the different way people invest and that's what makes a market mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people that probably made a ton of money but if we were looking at this we would have never even been interested in it just from you know from like a factor perspective or a, like from a quantitative perspective looking at the numbers probably in the fact that it was it's a durable good and that it was during the pandemic mm-hmm. you know that's more the concern um you know if it was a totally consumable good and whatever then you know it would, could get back to normal pretty fast but with a durable good like that it may be difficult to get back to normal you know like i mean imagine you know say there was some company that like makes fire pits or something you would probably go oh i don't know if they're going to continue at the same pace because everyone went home and probably is spending all their time and doing this yeah. and stuff so they probably had a boom and then they won't continue to in later periods you know it was very similar with lakeland we right. talked about lakeland yeah we made like where they make like gloves and stuff like mm-hmm. that yeah different protective gear and stuff yeah and so it had a big boom that way um yeah, and there's other companies in which it's been pricing that's really improved. You know, we talked about some steel things and stuff. It hasn't been that they've sold much more of that. Mm-hmm. They just had a big improvement in pricing. Not as big a deal because then pricing comes back down and uh, your business still works out that way. The issue for me a little bit more would be how many Pelotons are out in the wild now. You know, that's kind of more of the issue. That's true with a lot of different things. Um, I You have, yeah. Uh, you just you have to be careful about that. It's not the same as a consumable thing. It's very easy to, you know, you have to remember that. You have to remember that with Tesla. Once the Tesla gets sold, that's uh, that customer can't come back and buy another Tesla for years. If you're going to sell a Peloton, you could sell other kinds of things and stuff. It isn't the same as if you're Lululemon and you're selling something. That's a very different kind of sale, you know. They can come back and buy pretty fast again. I remember with Peloton during COVID, the pitch was 0% down. 24 months or something like that mm-hmm, which is how you sell mattresses um, yeah it's how they sell products like that of course um yeah and of course that drove it because uh, making people pay you know up front for something is is difficult but um yeah you know we'll see it, it it's not very expensive now really right um if we, well i mean it spiked i guess on the rumors of a I was going to say, so reading the tea leaves, last week we hear that Amazon is shopping Peloton. 
now there's a new CEO. Does that mean that Amazon ditched it? They did their due diligence and they thought it no. doesn't make sense. Does it no, mean they no. brought a CEO in to make changes to sell it? No. I mean, if you were just reading tea leaves, what are no, your thoughts? If I was reading the tea leaves, I would say they're making it easier to sell it. Okay. It, because if so, I have no insight into what's happening. Someone's got to be the scapegoat. But <laughs> if no, if you're at the board of the, uh, if the board's like, look, we'd like to sell, then a CEO who's not interested in that is I'm not dressing up the company to sell it and stuff. I'm not negotiating with people to sell the company. I'm interested in running the company. So goodbye. Mm -hmm. um, that is most likely. It could be having a scapegoat, like you said. But I honestly think that it can, if you're just selling a company to, because they were never going to keep the CEO, yeah. you know, whoever the companies are probably talking about it for, for buying it. The board. Yeah. Um, he will become executive chairman of the yeah. board. Yeah. And he was the founder. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to me, does that mean we're bringing in a professional CEO, someone that has industry experience? No, I think, I, look, I don't know. I really don't know. Uh -huh. But if these rumors are true, I think both in the case of Activision and Peloton, these are basically essentially headless companies. They are intending to sell it to someone. They're intending to resolve the issue. They are not looking for any CEO to come in and do a long-term uh, running of the company with a lot of freedom and autonomy to do what needs to be done. I don't think that, but we, we don't know what the behind the scenes things are, but I think that both of these things in the case of Activision, I think the reason for selling it was completely motivated by the, the succession issues or whatever you want to call it. If you were going to oust your C CEO otherwise, and he wasn't, he didn't want to be ousted. Um, and in the case, but he felt that there was too much pressure on it to continue the way that it was. And in the case of Peloton, if you um, are committed to the idea of selling it or something, then you get a new CEO. So, I mean, I think they both end up in the same place. Although I think that the reason they're selling is because of CEO and other people in the organization issues at Activision. And that is just not tenable long-term. And I think at Peloton, they may have decided that the business isn't tenable on its own in the long-term, which then makes your management situation not tenable because who's going to take a job to get a company ready to be sold, especially if it's not going to be sold for uh, to a financial buyer, but someone who's going to just take, just wants the product and stuff and the name and isn't intending to keep um, much in the way of the uh, management or employees there at all, probably would be the case. We don't know. But I mean, Amazon and Apple, you know, might not be. Amazon historically, when they do acquire things, actually does keep a lot of the stuff. They've, they've shut down some things and stuff, but they're not a company that usually buys and shuts everything down. In fact, they buy and leave some things completely alone. Oh, yeah. I just got done reading the story about Zappos. Mm -hmm. And their biggest thing when Amazon bought them was because Zappos was known for having like a different culture. Yeah. I guess you could say it was, hey, we don't want to mess with anything you guys are doing. Just mm -hmm. be yourselves and we're going to acquire you. And a lot of that was because Zappos had early on investors that wanted to get out. So it was kind of more of like, a, it just made sense to find a big, they were looking for uh, a new large investor to kind of take out these other investors. And then they had always spoke with Amazon. So then um, they reached out to Amazon and the talks kind of went from there. But Jeff Bezos and Amazon was very big on just do your own thing, run your own business. Yeah, I think they will sometimes acquire things just for the te technology though. And so I think like there's two different kinds of, yeah. Is that kind of like what you think with Whole Foods? Oh, I do think Whole, uh, Whole Foods is, I think, is an ex ex well, I, I think Whole Foods is somewhat of an experiment because I've, I've said also that they might buy something in movie things and stuff. They are 
they're doing a big acquisition of GM, but I mean something like a movie theater or something. Uh, I think they're probably interested in having data and being able to experiment and stuff in the real world, which they don't have a lot of right now. They do online, but it would be nice for them if they could have higher frequency, lots of data, see how things respond to different pricing things and try different things out. And I, I always felt that's why they were interested in Whole Foods. It wasn't the most natural thing to do in terms of um, anything else about it, except that it was a possible acquisition that had a national footprint. And it had a well-known brand and stuff, but that you could kind of test those things out and stuff. So it gave them an immediate thing, you know, all across the country. Instead of what would have made more sense is, you know, to build out or to buy in a specific area if you wanted to kind of dominate that way. But I don't think that's what they're interested in. I think they're interested in experimenting in a really big market. And if it works out, then they can, you know, go big in that market. Mm -hmm. uh, so far, they really haven't, you know. So let's move on to uh, interest rates, the okay. topic that's on every investor's mind. Interest rates are going to start to rise. We have liftoff in March, it sounds like. Uh, it's going to be data dependent, is what Powell said, but it definitely sounds like interest rates are going to start to rise. A mm -hmm. uh, Bank of America is forecasting seven interest rate hikes this year, and other banks are kind of similar as well. Four to seven, I think, is the range, yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. um, the most common question I've gotten to bring up on the podcast okay. is how interest rate hikes will affect banks. Because I think a lot of people think about it, well, hey, you know, interest rates are higher, they can lend out at higher rates, that's great mm -hmm. for banks. Um, that's the most common question we've gotten. So maybe you could kind of hit on that and let people know what you're it's thinking about. It's very complicated and very mixed, depending on the bank. Uh, in general, higher rates are good for banks for two reasons. Um, although in, to some extent it matters why the rates are higher too. I mean, that's the other issue, but that's more of a correlation thing. So um, the it's better for two reasons, sort of. One is that... I know if people email me or whatever, they assume that if you have higher rates, then yes, you have higher rates that you can lend at, but you also have higher rates that you're borrowing at, that you're paying on deposits and things like that, and won't the two cancel out. Historically, not really. If you look at um, the relationship between them, that the, uh, the higher the rate, the better the um, absolute spread that you would have on it is um so you know you're, you'd be paying some fraction of fed funds and you'd be lending at some um added number a few hundred basis points or whatever above fed funds even if you were lending short right um so that's sort of a benefit but obviously the much bigger benefit which i think people overlook all the time is that banks have significant non-interest expense a bank is losing a lot of money with you as their customer if they don't lend uh, or buy security or something. But if they were just, um, it's not like, oh, that you cost them nothing. You cost them quite a bit having a branch there providing all the services that they do to you. And uh, it's it's quite large. And so it, depending on the bank, it could be, um, you know, it, it could be, it could be a little bit less than 1%. I don't know. You know, let's say it could be 0.8% or something of deposits, but it costs me 1.6%. And that's a really big number. And the Fed, no matter what they do, or central banks in Europe do, does not provide any relief for banks in that respect. And that's a pretty big number. So when they say, oh, well, rates are at zero, they're not paying anything. Well, I, no, they're paying one or 2% or whatever, which is what it costs to, uh, in non-interest stuff to run a bank. So 
it's not as helpful as you would think to have extremely low rates for banks, like negative rates, for instance, in, in Europe and stuff. That's not helpful at all for the economics of it. And it doesn't help them get in a position where they can lend a lot in the future. So um, because of that, you know, there's kind of a, a sort of a fixed expense that they have regardless. So having higher rates is helpful that way in the same way that having like um, higher sales prices, even at the same gross margin for a company would be really helpful if you have a high fixed cost base. If you don't, if you have no fixed cost at all, yeah, it doesn't really matter that much. All what matters is the spread in terms of, you know, your, your margin, but, um, it is much more helpful to it's, it's much more helpful to have a lot more sales if you have higher fixed costs and some of bank th things are fixed costs. So in a sense, you're just getting bigger, um, without, you know, a lot of improvement in the economics. Although, like I said, there actually is some improvement in the, the interest rate economics too. Uh, but most banks, although it varies between banks, are significantly biased towards lending uh, towards um, borrowing short and lending long. That's just a feature of the economy generally that we all want to, whether we're businesses or individuals, whatever, we all want to deposit our money and be able to take it out at any moment. And then when we want to borrow, we want to borrow long and at fixed rates and stuff. And they can swap things. They can um, negotiate uh, to have things be adjustable and have them be whatever. But it really, they're always working from the position, honestly, that their borrowers want to borrow long and fixed and um, that the people, their depositors, um, want to uh, deposit short, like to Man. a significant extent that they can take money out at any time. You know, that's just always what the issue is. And so that, and then depending on the bank and who they serve and what their strategy is, they can be significantly different. Um, so a bank that's focused on mortgage type things is very exposed to that. Whereas what we've mentioned before, Frost, Frost is an example of one that's not very exposed. You know, half of its stuff is securities, only the other half is um, loans. And uh, while there is commercial mortgage in there and stuff like that, CNI lending tends to be pretty short term and much more uh, floating and stuff like that. Um, you know, that's just a normal, acceptable part of CNI lending, much more so. Businesses assume that their everyday needs for working capital stuff and things like that are going to move around with interest rates in a way that you don't when you go to buy a house or an office building or something. So, to be clear for people, um, when you say exposed, you're talking about exposed on flat yield curve. Okay. Yeah. A flat yield curve. So a flat yield curve. Uh, so, I mean, this is very, I guess they're talking about it now in the press and stuff all the time, yeah. but this is the yield not, curve is flattening. Yeah. So yield curve. Uh, so, you know, different parts of the yield curve, obviously can be flat, inverted, whatever. In fact, I believe we're inverted at 2030. I haven't checked, but I think we have been for a while, meaning that you get, you have a higher interest rate when you buy a 20 year bond than a 30 year bond. I don't think there's any, there's some great reasons why that is or isn't. I just think that it, it happens to be happening is. right now. No, I mean, there's there could be demand. Like gravity, it just is. <laughs> there could be demand reasons for it. There's not really much of a difference between a 20-year and 30-year bond. There's probably some stuff that people who know the market well understand that I don't about why there's there's sometimes a slightly more demand for uh, other things equal for 30-year than 20 and that this has an effect. Um, but I just mean, so that can happen, right? And things like that can happen at any point. So uh, if people say like, you know, people have this expectation that if a yield curve inverts, you're going to have a recession, right? 
Um, that seems to be the big thing that excites people about the yield curve thing is looking for an inversion. And if there is an inversion, that predicts that there will be a recession, right? It's a pretty good predictor. Uh, a meaningfully long, a meaningful size inversion, and for a meaningful amount of time, has been pretty good at predicting uh, recession. So let's quantify that. What is meaningful? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, to be honest, just not that it almost corrects immediately whenever it gets under by a few bases. So like six months would be meaningful in your eyes. Oh, time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Six months of an immersion yeah. would be very meaningful. Yeah. I mean, depending on what thing we're talking about. So I think earlier this year or end of last year, the yield curve inverted for like a second or something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the one that they always talk about on, uh, and I don't, you know, it's just a convenient one to do is a 210 yeah. that they do for um, talking about in the media. But honestly, I don't... So 10-year treasury, yeah, two-year. But I'll be honest, I have no reason to... I mean, maybe economists have studied this and figured out statistically. I have no idea why 10 would be more predictive than 27. You would think 27 would be more like the thing that you'd use. But 10 is maybe more common. That's like the barometer amongst uh, investors because that's why they now don't quote you seven years you know what i mean yeah so uh, sort of like when i said you know I, I just think that's probably what but i don't think it matters i mean maybe there's some reason why it would matter but i would think seven is sufficiently far out that uh an inversion in two seven would be the thing that you could use um yeah so we just mean that the shorter term interest rate is higher i say interest rate but i should really say yield the because it's set by the price of the the security in the secondary market, right? So if it goes down, um, that increases the yield, just like the earnings yield on a stock increase or the dividend yield on a stock increases as its price falls. So if the price falls enough on um, short-term bonds, uh, more so than on long-term bonds, then you'd have an inversion. And so then you have a situation where what we mean by an inversion is that rates are lower on say a two-year than a 10-year. Um, and when that happens, then that's people find that that predicts recessions. Um, for banks, the issue is that they are borrowing shorter and lending longer. So if it inverts and stays inverted for any period of time, that can become an issue because you're basically taking, you're basically selling below your cost. You know, if you think about it, you know, if you kept doing business as you were before and as you would expect to do in the future, because you're not thinking that an inversion will last, you know, that that's the normal state. I mean, you might think, oh, it'll last half a year, but you're not thinking, oh, it'll last a decade. So you're running your business with the expectation that borrowing shorter and lending longer is is not a way to go broke. But obviously it is if some it was like permanently inverted. So what about mortgage rates as they keep ticking up? Yeah, it depends on the the bank and stuff. But obviously, for a bunch of banks, I would say that longer term rates matter more in terms of mortgages. So although people will base it off of um, the yield curve and will always quote that, actually, it's the mortgage market, um, probably. So you're borrowing short and then you're doing longer term mortgages. You're not doing usually other kinds of lending that are really long term. You know, there's a corporate bond market that's long term, but there's not a lot of, you know, it, there's not a lot of lending that's really long-term. There are some term loans that are fairly long, but even if you imagine a 10-year term loan or something that's closer to, a, you know, um, it's, you know, that's it, basically closer to a five-year bond than like 15 or something. So we're talking still about medium term. So it's really mortgages that are long-term things. When we're talking about loans that are made for 15 or longer, we're really talking about mortgages. So that would be the thing to look at. 
Got it. Interesting. What about companies that would benefit? So you think like insurance, for example. <laughs> well, these are com- insurance companies. These are complicated. Uh, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The issue with insurance companies, there's a few issues with insurance companies that you want to be very careful of right now. One is inflation. So if inflation is above expectations that were used when writing the business, then it's significantly problematic for a combined ratio. So you can lose a lot of money. Um, Insurance has been a little bit lucky so far. We'll see if things change in that. um, Although the cost of certain things has gone up a lot, it doesn't really matter to insurers. And it just, this just seems to be just purely a luck issue thing. So if you look at what isn't inflating at all, right? Like medical is not inflating at all, which is great for, for them. Um, and then you look at what is inflating. Well, a bunch of stuff's inflating that insurers don't cover, right? So they don't care what happens with meat prices, right? The one thing they cover that would be a really big issue, I mean, they cover houses, but the one thing that they cover that'd be a really big issue right now that should be is cars. Mm-hmm. But frequency, so frequency is just how often uh, accidents that happen. So uh, how often you have claims. So frequency seems to be down a huge amount. And that's because a lot of people aren't driving during rush hour altogether. Rush hour obviously is a disproportionate number of accidents and stuff like that. So just the number of accidents has not been high for car insurers. And that's been lucky. Um, I mean, not lucky. The The pandemic caused both the, dec- the decline in frequency of losses and also the um, it also caused the big increase in like car prices. But remember that people have comprehensive car insurance and all that. You could imagine how high that could be now. No one would have thought that they were writing business that would cover these things like that. Um, there's just other issues with it. Now you, insurers do when a car is totaled get to have a higher salvage value right now than they otherwise would. Um, but still, I just think that if you had a normal, if car if driving patterns were normal right now, I think car insurers almost certainly would have had set their, would know that they had set their premiums too low recently, right before the pandemic and actually during the pandemic, to be honest. And maybe even this year, um, I think that a bunch of companies probably still have continuously predicted inflation that was lower than what it turned out to be. Car policies though do reset very quickly. A lot of people are on six month policies and stuff, so it's not as big a deal as some other stuff. Yeah, I wonder how many companies actually thought inflation would be transitory mm-hmm. when doing their budget planning and stuff like that. So I think you're gonna see if you see like in Q one and Q two a lot of companies getting hit on their margins because of inflation, I think you'll start to see them raise their prices if they have the ability to do that to try and counteract that. Yeah. And then the other big risk to insurers is that most insurers carry large investment portfolios. And for various reasons, a bunch of insurers have an incentive, I would say, to like in terms of reporting steady, smooth earnings and things like that, to do some things that um, are particularly bad investment decisions when bonds are pretty expensive and when inflation is pretty high and stuff. And they have been doing that, some of them, not all of them. Some hold a fair amount of equities and stuff and a fair amount of cash. But many prefer to own longer-term bonds. And obviously the losses in that is um, quite large. Uh, you know, so, you know, we talk about duration and stuff. So, you know, in general, if you think about it, um, a... Very long-term bond that is something that's not going to pay you back for a long time with a very low interest rate. So the cash flows coming off of it are very, very low. Ends up with what we call a very high duration, right? Because what's happening is that 
disproportionately, it's looking like a zero coupon bond that at the end of the period, you're getting paid a huge amount of the total cash flows. See, if you had a bond that was yielding 10% or something, the, and it say it was a 30-year bond. Well, by the year 30, you've already collected you know 300% of the value of the bond, and now you're just getting uh, this amount too um, back. But if you bought something that was yielding a couple percent, you know, um, and it was a 30-year bond, then you basically, you know, I mean, you're getting half of your, the entire, you know, not discounted, but half of the entire value of the bond in, in nominal dollars and stuff all as a lump sum at the end. You can imagine it's very tied to what interest rates are over the whole period. Mm-hmm. So if it's got, you know, it's got high duration. And the duration is something which basically changes in interest rates. Um, by looking at duration, you can see how much that's likely to change the market value of the security. And so something that has, you know, several times more the duration is going to be affected several times more per change in, uh, in um, say, a 1% change in interest rates or something like that. So if you buy long-term bonds with low yields, which some have been doing recently, then you'll have very large capital losses over time if interest rates rise. Yeah. Um, and right now that's, you know, I mean, right now your yields are way below your inflation and things like that, but you're not having to report big losses, big mark to market losses. But obviously like um, over time you will have to, and that's something that insurers will have to face. Um, and it would be one of their biggest issues. So you'd have to look to see what their portfolios consist of and stuff. Unfortunately, insurers, a lot of insurers have very significant amount of their assets in bonds and equities and bonds and equities aren't terribly cheap. So, Have you looked at universal insurance holdings at all recently? Uh, no, I have not. What's it at? Oh, not much different price. $17. Yeah, it was at what, 15 or something, 14? I, I think it's gone it up really a little bit recently, let's see. Let's see. Yeah, it went up a bit and then it came back down. There was legislation stuff. So Universal does uh, homeowners insurance, which is basically like hurricane risk and stuff in Florida. They they write in other states too, for those that haven't heard us talk before. They do have a very large investment portfolio, if we could go to the quick FS, relative to their market cap. So they're very exposed to like... Um, oh, well, yeah, so $528 Yeah, do you have the quarterly thing there? Yeah. Let's see. Right, so their investment portfolio is at what? One point one billion. One point one billion, and what's their market cap? Five hundred twenty-eight million. Yeah, so you got you know, let's say a little bit more than two dollars a share in investments for every one dollar in um, that you're buying in the market. So you go out and buy seventeen. Let's say it was a seventeen dollars something like that. You pay seventeen dollars for the stock. You're getting thirty-four dollars worth of bonds now, because um, they really don't own equities. That if I remember right. Um, now, you know, I'm not saying you own it outright because they have huge amounts of, um, you know, reserves and things like that, that would have to be paid out, but this is what's on their balance sheet. So that's how exposed you are to it in terms of how much leverage it is into bonds. Um, so because like, let's see, yeah, their float is the unearned premiums is like 950 million. So that's basically what those investments are from. They have a little bit of cash, but not a huge amount. I mean, really, it is a lot of investments. And then we would see, you know, like what those investments are and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, they're pretty significantly exposed to that kind of thing. So when you're buying into them, uh, you're getting the underwriting result, but then you're also getting this investment result. So certain, you know, insurance things 
have a lot of investment um, assets created, a lot of float created that ends up being put into investments versus their uh, the business that they write. And other ones don't. And that has to do with different factors about like how long it is that they're writing and things like that. Um, but as a result, you have to be careful that a lot of people might focus just on the underwriting results here. You know, oh, it's going to be a good year for hurricanes or something like that. Okay. But you want to remember that it might be a good year for hurricanes and a bad year for bonds or vice versa, you know, and that is an issue because to some extent, both of those things matter. You know, you wouldn't want a year that's a bad year for hurricanes and a bad year for bonds to happen at the same time. You definitely yeah, would prefer sure. that somehow it's it randomly happens that a great bond year happens in the year that's really bad for hurricanes and vice versa. So those are the two factors to consider there. Um, they've been able to raise their prices a bunch, um, but they've needed to. So we'll see if it gets better that way. But that's something you can follow kind of um, law changes and stuff there in Florida. Is this a weird company? And I guess all insurance is like this to an extent, but you're just kind of waiting for the hurricane to hit Florida and just hope it's not as bad as it could be or as bad as a or worse than they would project or reserved for. Is that kind of a weird business too? And I know obviously Buffett's in insurance. There's a lot of insurance companies and stuff like that, but I don't know. That's the business. It is the business. I don't, yeah. I don't tell you that's insurance. I mean, that's merger arbitrage too. Yeah. That's a lot of things like and that. And the way you think about it is like when there is no hurricanes, obviously that's great for them. Yeah. I mean, this company was making, I don't know what they were doing, 30% ROEs and stuff in years when probably their book value had been, you know, the price to book had been like one or something not that long before. I mean, they must have been going up by a ton. Let's see where they're, you have their um, returns on equity. How is that right? This is quarterly. So oh, okay. Yeah. So if you, it's been very cyclical yeah. this way, right? Mm -hmm. So at, 41%. Right. And now they're at four. Yeah. Right. But they had a period of, let's see, quite a long period, six, seven years or something where they were doing 20%, um, mm -hmm. five or six years where they were doing 20 to 40% or something a year return equity, which is pretty impressive. Cause remember they use reinsurance and stuff. Um, so reinsurance, the, the two issues that are big for this company, I think, you know, yes, they can have hurricanes and that's what could wipe them out and all of that. True. But I think the two issues are reinsurance. So reinsurance rates and the problem has been reinsurance rates have been rising after they've been falling a lot before then. And um, that may have to do with just availability of capital and some other attitude things about reinsurers. But basically, if reinsurers are feeling pretty good and, uh, you know, then you're able to get capital is flowing pretty freely and all that kind of stuff, then you could get pretty cheap reinsurance. And that's very important for them. The other thing is uh, that I think to keep in mind too, is that they're having significant social inflation as the industry calls it, which is um, in Florida, it seems a significant amount of it is fraud, uh, to be honest, um, particularly in covering certain kinds of policies like, um, covering things that are like, um, there's different kinds of policies that they have that, you know, they do like A, B, uh, C type things. And, um, in some cases I, I would say that you're having things where lawyers are, um, suing over stuff and, uh, things that were previous damage are being treated as if they were caused by a storm. And whether or not those payments are made, there's legal fees associated with that. And then sometimes the payments are made and that's driving up prices. And that seems to be a much bigger factor than anything else. Um, and so the attitudes there. And so that's something where I said with the legislation and with the, 
what is the culture there in terms of attorneys and things like that and all that is a, a big factor and so they've had significant increases in losses because of that um all of these companies that write in florida um it's a really big budget item for people who have a home in florida um you know the the it's huge compared to like people in other parts of the country in terms of what their homeowners insurance is obviously relative to their income and relative to the value of the house and all that because of these risks. And uh, so it's a big political issue more so than it would be in other states. It would be hard to get people all excited about homeowner rates in, in most states, but there it's like an issue sort of like property taxes are an issue or something. It's, it's very meaningful to people. So that can be tough when you have politics that way mm -hmm. because they may say at times, you know, oh, you can't write, raise rates at all, even when rate increases are the only way that the system can be, um, you know, can can be able to absorb a large amount of losses or something, you know, when you bring politics into it that way. Sometimes uh, there's a mismatch and the things that agree politically don't result in a functioning market that would work that way, you know. The same things can happen with energy prices or anything, you know, um, where if you have some regulation of some of that stuff, it can be a bit of an issue um, because they're not necessarily setting it at a rate that the would be right for the market. So... I, that's the really big one and you have to see some sort of slowdown in terms of like I said what they call social inflation stuff but it's basically you know the roof on my um, garage was damaged in the storm when you know it wasn't um, but now I get a new roof because of that and awareness of that and people pursuing that kind of thing and stuff it doesn't take a lot of that to really change rate you know to require rates to be changed because you have very big difference in losses and then, you know, inflation stuff now isn't helping either. Mm -hmm. So uh, it can be hard to get your rates up fast enough when you're facing those sorts of things, you know. A lot of times you say we're increasing rates every year, 10 15% or something, and you could still be behind it. It's tough business, huh? Insurance well, in they made a lot of money. They made a lot of money back then, yeah. And you the look at their market cap, it went from when they were really just killing it, it went from like 100-something million to... 900 million in a couple of years four years five years yeah you can 40 million to you can 995 make, peak yeah you can make a lot of money in this or i'm sorry the 1.3 billion yeah yeah you can make a lot of money in this industry um it is a little weird business it seems like a very simple business you know homeowners insurance but it is a little weird because remember they're being reinsured so they're basically just a middleman um they're not, they're not being reinsured anywhere near 100 percent of what they're doing i'm not saying that but i'm saying that they are avoiding the very big losses mm -hmm. so they are reinsuring themselves they're being reinsured in a way in which they believe they won't be wiped out by a once every 50 years type storm or something like that you know um that kind of thing and so a lot of that so you think okay so they're not really bearing a lot of um, the risk that way, which is how you'd think you'd have really high returns on equity and stuff like that. But essentially, they have the rates on one hand, which move around all over the place in terms of what they can charge you know, on the primary rates. And then you have the reinsurance. And those rates change all the time, too. So that's why you have the thing they have to watch out for, which is like, it doesn't just matter what hurricanes are and stuff. It matters really what rates are mm. and what reinsurance rates are. And you have to watch those two things. It's all about the pricing that way. A lot of people, when I talk about insurance things and stuff, do focus a lot on the the risks and the losses. You know, if they see a bad loss year, um, meaning that the losses, the losses are high versus premiums, they go to why did that happen? What happened that year that caused these losses and stuff, which can be the reason. But my first thing always is, well, look to see if the culprit is 
um, price, you know, premiums and not the loss, you know? So they assume if it's losses over premiums that, oh, I should think about the losses because that's what it says. It's the loss ratio. But the biggest explanation, both on expense ratio, loss, whatever, is you may not have priced it properly. And so looking at pricing and that's the hard thing. And this is a very cyclical industry that way. If you have years where you have a bunch of high returns on equity, then you're going to attract years that are less, uh, you're going to attract competition that causes years that are less good in the future. And that cyclicality is common, but the reverse is also true. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a market that's really bad in terms of pricing for a while, it will get better unless, you know, something you're competing against people who are not rational and economic that way. But as long as you're competing against others, you know, that are in the same sort of situations, you for profit type companies like this, then, you know, it'll get better after a few years of having real problems. You just need to have an idea of what the competitors look like. And uh, there's lots of data on the Florida um, hurricane, uh, you know, homeowners companies that are exposed to hurricane. Uh, it is a, it's a riskier industry. In general, they're not that amazingly capitalized versus potential storms, um, you know, so, and they're concentrated in it. So I'd say they have an unusually high risk of like failure and stuff generally um, compared to other insurance companies. As we say, this is one of those situations where having a local edge could be a detriment to the company because if a different insurance company spread the risk out throughout the country, for example, they're so concentrated in Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they've tried to sp- move into other areas and stuff. I don't know if that's a good idea, but they're trying to do it. They all try to do it because they don't want to be the company that's all in Florida. Um, yeah. And you know, an issue here is obviously they've grown to be very big. Um, there's market share data on them and stuff, but we can just see from the past of how much they grew by, because they retained so much of their earnings. Uh, right. So like they retained earnings, they retained what over that period of 10 years, they retained $400 million of earnings. Mm Mm-hmm. They grew their balance sheet a lot. So total assets have doubled or something in the last 10 years. And um, so, you know, as a result, they've grown to be a really big size. And, you know, if they and their competitors have grown like that, that is a little bit worrying. Uh, You know, whenever you see fast growth like that, that it tends in an industry that's kind of cyclical and whatever, it tends to result in lower returns later. Um, But... The biggest issue for me looking at this would be what, and this is why it's very hard for me to analyze it. One would be the culture of this place and the organization and stuff. And I couldn't come down on that one way or the other after looking at it. But the other would be what's going on in Florida and the things that cause cause higher losses over time, you know? And so that's what I mean about law stuff, fraud stuff, um, different things like that. And that's hard to know unless you're kind of there. We were reading about it all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Or have a good feel for company culture. Yeah, I just think here there's a really big risk. We'll, we'll see what happens with reinsurance rates too and stuff. But um, I do think that the problem is there's there's sort of a political issue here. That at times I think there's an issue that... Um, how do I put this in a way that's doesn't sound overly political or whatever? But there's a, there's a way that... Um, so look, if you want a s- successful insurance industry in your state, that's going to pay on all the policies that it has and everything, there's kind of two ways that you can do it. You can implement policies that are going to reduce losses and make things cheaper for everyone that way. And the industry can write that way, or you can 
not do that. And then you have to raise rates to get them to be at the level that's sufficient. Um, you know, so either you have to root out whatever's causing the loss increases, right? Or you have to raise rates. The most logical allow higher rates, you know, the most logical thing politically is probably not to fight against the causes, the things that are causing the loss stuff, which is probably popular with attorneys and things like that. And not to, um, advocate for higher rates and things which homeowners would hate. So the kind of most status quo, easiest political decision is probably to allow a system to exist that in bad years is too fragile. So, you know, that's a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. I, they may have a great deal of courage and stuff and deal with one or the other issue and have a system that works, but there's probably a high temptation politically to um take actions which or or not take actions but um to do things which allow for a system that might have trouble um either lowering its losses enough or lowering it or raising its prices enough to get those two in line so it's a little bit different than certain markets in that it doesn't appear to be a heavily regulated market or something when you look at it and read about it and everything but it might have more to do with state politics in Florida than we think, you know. So that's the big caution I have on that company. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, hit the subscribe button, hit that like button, uh, follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound on Twitter. That's the best way to get everything that we put out into the universe. If you are interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, we have a hedge fund for qualified investors, a $2.1 million net worth. Um, and for everybody else, we do have a managed accounts arm. Reach out to me, Andrew at focuscompounding.com. Uh, we would love to have a conversation. I thank everybody so much for the support and we will see you in the next podcast.